Suburban Folk is excited to be working with our sponsor, Podcast Production School. If you've ever wanted to learn the hard skills that are necessary to support your favorite podcast shows, Podcast Production School has you covered. They're an online course designed to help you master the skills and strategies needed to launch, manage, and grow podcasts. They help you learn everything from audio editing to show note creation to marketing and promotion. You can get started learning the process by downloading their free podcast production or launch checklist strategy. Visit podcastproductionschool.com slash go slash suburban. That's podcastproductionschool.com slash go slash suburban. When you sign up, be sure to use the code suburban dollar sign 100. That's capital S suburban dollar sign 100 to get $100 off your order. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today's topic focuses on retirement. If you're like me, your mind immediately focuses on finance. Are you saving enough? Will you be able to do the things that you'd like to do when it comes time to leave the work world? Instead, we're going to focus on some other areas that need attention, such as your community structure, your social circle. Do you have a home that will allow you to be as independent as possible? My guest is Dr. Sarah Zeff-Geber. She's a nationally known expert in the field of planning for the next phase of life. She's recognized early on that the baby boom generation would reinvent retirement in a very exciting way. It led her to found Life Encore, a life planning and transition consultancy for baby boomers. Dr. Geber has been featured and quoted in major media, including USA Today's Best Places to Retire series, Forbes Personal Finance, The Huffington Post, the Senior Care Authority's Aging Baby Boomers series, and the Longevity Network. She has also blogged for Silver Nest, Retirement and Good Living, and many others. Since 2011, Sarah has focused on solo agers, adults who are 50-plus with no children, and those who are aging alone for other reasons. Her recently released book, Essential Retirement Planning for Solo Agers, sheds light on the challenge and offers a roadmap for their retirement planning. Sarah, thanks so much for taking some time to join us today. Glad to be here. Can you start us off by talking about your background? I focus on the non-financial side of retirement uh, and aging. So I got into that Um Because I um, spent 25 years doing leadership development and a lot of uh, executive coaching. And I guess about 10 years ago, I started hearing my baby boomer executive coaching clients wanting to talk more about their retirement plans than their strategic plans. So I thought, well, this is a clear message. Something's going on here. And and indeed, that is about the time that a lot of the leading edge baby boomers started to think about, what am I going to do after I leave my job? And some of them were uh, looking forward to that. Some of them were thinking, I hope I don't ever have to leave because I love what I do and uh, or I can't afford not to do it or whatever it was. But that's kind of what got me into the field. 
is the, the huge interest. And I thought, well, as a coach, I have a lot to offer in the way of, of just shifting my focus from uh, leadership coaching to retirement transition coaching. So that's initially how I kind of got hooked on the whole areas of uh, retirement and aging. Do you find that when you first encounter people, they're like me, that immediately their mind goes to finances when thinking about retirement rather than quality of life and what somebody wants to do, not just going into retirement saying, I'm done with the things I have to do and now what? Yes, exactly. Um, When I first started, a lot of people um, assumed that I was a financial planner. And I had to explain to them carefully that uh, I was not a financial planner, but that I work a lot with financial planners because they're often not as comfortable talking about the softer side of retirement. And when I say retirement, I kind of mean that whole transition um, of figuring out what you want to do and and who you want to be, um, kind of how you want to represent yourself in your next act or your next phase of life. So, yeah, it's still a process of um, really defining my niche in the retirement world, which is, again, the social or emotional side of the retirement transition. Is there a key time in life where people should start considering how they want to shape their retirement. And I would think that would be, of course, somewhat financial, depending on how much they're making, what they are saving. But then also, I guess the age old question of what would you want to do if money wasn't a factor? I could say it's never too early to start planning. But you know, I'm sure as well as I do, that some people are planners and other people are just kind of more spontaneous. They like life to be uh, kind of a serendipitous experience. But I think at the latest, people should really start to think about doing some planning for it is when you're in your 50s. By the time you're in your 60s, you ought to at least have given some thought to is my money going to last until I'm 95 or 100? Um, You probably should have been to see a financial planner by then, at least for a meeting or two, just to let her or him plug your numbers, whatever money you have and have saved and um, expect to apply to your retirement, to plug those numbers into the wonderful algorithms that we have today that can tell just whether your money is going to last at your current rate of expenditure or whether you're going to have to cut back um, or um, whether you need to get more aggressive and start saving more. It's it's nice to know. And uh, most people, I think, do want to know that. So I I always recommend at least one meeting to assess that with a financial advisor when you're somewhere in your 50s, maybe early 60s. But that's getting a little late. Traditional advisors are going to talk about budget, but you're probably focused on the lifestyle aspect of that even more of what does... Uh, downsizing a house mean for the way you live or um, what does 
getting a used car instead of a brand new car every so many years going to do for ultimately what you're wanting to do. Is that something you also focus on shaping to make sure people really assess what's important and then how that will ultimately cross over to their financial goals so that, again, they're able to do what they want? Absolutely. There's there's a lot of crossover. Um, I don't get involved in things like budgeting. Um but I do encourage people to really take a look at their income and their outflow of money to uh, see if it's sustainable. And of course, when people do have kids, those are <laughs> those are big financial factors. Um, I focus most of my time and energy on um, talking to people who don't have children or who are aging alone for other reasons. Um, and so they, they're not as concerned generally with putting kids through college or bailing kids out of situations that, you know, adolescents get into and sometimes cost a lot of money, like wrecking cars. Um, so I, I really focus on the, the softer side of the whole retirement transition and looking at um, what's, you know, what your interests are and, and where you might want to to where you might want to apply your skills after you leave your midlife career. Now, again, some people really don't want to leave their midlife career at all. I know, uh, especially for some reason or other attorneys, I've met quite a number of attorneys who are working at their law practice and well into their 80s. Um, I know plenty of doctors who are still practicing in their 70s. People who are independently employed, like CPAs and, um, oh gosh, artists and consultants and, and whatnot, people who don't have to punch any kind of a time clock whatsoever, can often do a, a kind of a softer retirement transition if they want, um, or no transition at all, and just keeping on doing what they've been doing for the last 30 or 40 years, if they love it, why would they want to quit? So I guess you can tell at this point that I consider the whole retirement transition a very personal thing. And some people are very committed in one direction, maybe making sure that they do formally retire. Or they've saved enough money for it. They want a classic kind of retirement where they walk out the door one Friday afternoon after a big retirement party and Monday morning they're on that first cruise because uh, they really want to enjoy life in ways that they haven't been able to during their working years. So it really ranges all over the map with what people want to do. So part of my job as a retirement coach, uh, when I still do that, I'm not doing a lot of coaching anymore, but when I do that is to help people figure out what kind of lifestyle they do want when they are, are, um, winding down or completely done with their midlife career. Do you think that for somebody that's not currently their own boss or in a career like that, should they engage in the gig economy or have other side hustles or things like that to figure out what else it is they might want to do if their day job isn't that thing? And then also maybe taking steps to build towards some kind of uh, business of their own? 
Yes and no. Um, It's very hard for people who have full-time employment to also engage in the gig economy, though some do. Uh, It's just a matter of how many hours you have in the day, um, uh, how many hours of energy you have in the day. Um, But uh, certainly to give some thought to that and maybe dabble in it a little bit, some employers will let you actually retire gradually. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot that do that yet. Uh, We call it phased retirement. Um, And there are a handful of employers out there across the country. Uh, Actually, the federal government is is one. Many of the branches of government will let you do that. Uh, Universities generally do that with their, uh, their professors, at least. Uh, if not their staff. And again, a a smattering of other companies have experimented with it. It's a wonderful thing for employees because they get to ramp down their hours, maybe start working a four-day work week or a a three-and-a-half-day work week. Or in some cases, employers allow people to relocate for part of the year to areas where there's more need. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, CVS, the big pharmaceutical um, company, the pharmacy company really, uh, has um, a plan in some areas, especially the Northeast, where employees, if they'd like to live in a warmer climate for part of the year, can shift their work to, say, Florida for the year from the Boston area. And it makes sense for everybody. It's really a win-win because the company has more need for employees in the uh, the Sun Belt during the winter and less need for people in their Northeast stores. Employees often, many people, have, I certainly have a number of, of friends on the East Coast that like to go south during the winter. So it's really a win-win for everyone. Now, I don't know if other companies have the... Uh, kind of the setup to do that. Uh, but CVS is one that, that has attempted it. I haven't checked in with them in a few years, so I don't know if that's still going on, but I assume it is. Um, so that's an example of kind of a phased, uh, phased retirement. Um, there's lots of ways to phase into retirement. You, some employers will let you take a, uh, a sabbatical of sorts where you take two or three months off uh, generally with partial pay um, that you kind of pay into a sabbatical system while you're working and go experiment with the gig economy or experiment with a new place to live or whatever it is you want to do during that two or three months. So there's a number of options out there and it really takes talking to your employer and uh, kind of feeling your way along with that. You might go online and gather some ammunition in the way of evidence of other companies that do it and come up with a, a plan where you think that your your employer will benefit as well as you from it. But there's always that possibility. Do these programs have their eligibility typically based on age or is it years of service, a combination, just depends on the company? It really varies from company to company. And um, mostly it's about age. So, and again, companies have to be careful because they run the risk of looking like they are discriminating 
uh, by age. So there, there are a lot of reasons why companies have backed off and said, no, no, I'm not going to get involved in that kind of thing um, because it, legally they're, they're scared. It, it's also can uh, be a problem with regard to uh, insurance plans within the company and people have to be employed at, at certain levels, uh, meaning a certain number of hours in order to be covered by insurance. There's also companies that still have their um, um, heritage pension plans can also run into snags with that. So it, it really, it's a very individual thing. And if this sounds like something that your listeners um, are interested in, it's good to do a little research online because um, I'm very honestly about two years out of date with it. There may be many more companies doing it by now, um, or there may be fewer. I don't know. And then talk to your employer about it. The theme is options. Like you said, it sounds like there's more than one way to skin a cat uh, as, as far as approaching your retirement, whatever that happens to be. And as you mentioned, it's a very personal journey. So I would assume the more knowledge, the better and the more avenues for people that are getting up to that point is just more levers that you have to pull to figure out what works for you. Moving into your book, Essential Retirement Planning for Solo Agers, and you mentioned that term uh, in the beginning of our conversation, what specifically defines a solo ager and what is it about that particular demographic that draws you towards them? Well, when I coined that term back in, I think it was 2014, I intended it to mean very strictly people single or married who didn't, who don't have children. Um, because very honestly, I <laughs> looked around and what I saw was most of the people, most of the, the um, uh, much older adults, the people in their eighties and nineties were relying on their adult kids quite a bit to make, to uh, meet their needs or whether they lived at home or even if they lived in a, um, um, in a retirement community, they were still relying on their adult children for a lot of their needs. And um, I thought, wow, what are people without kids going to do? Now, I don't have kids. Uh, my, my husband and I um, don't, and uh, many of our friends do not. So uh, that's what got me started. Now, since then, as I use the term solo aging in my writing and my talks, people have come up to me and said, you know, you really need to broaden the perspective on that because there are a lot of people out there who do have children, but maybe those kids live far away. Maybe they're somewhat estranged. There's not a good relationship or the kids are not fully functional adults for whatever reason. Um, so there's a lot of ways that people can be solo agers and still have kids. So it's um, what, what I like to say now is a solo ager is someone who doesn't have children or who is aging alone for other reasons. So that's the definition I apply to it today. The way that the economy has shaped in the last 10 years or so, you read a bunch of different things about millennials not being able to get out on their own as quickly, which presumably could have a trickle down effect to how well they would be able to support their aging parents whenever they get to that age. So is it even possible in that situation that people that are parents of 
regular kids, <laughs> let's say, uh, really won't be in a position either to rely on their kids just for the way the economy has shaped out over the last few years. So really, it could even be a much larger, even than what you described. The kind of support that I'm talking about is much more a kind of a social support, a moral support, emotional support. Um, for instance, um, my husband has a cousin who's 96 and who lives in an assisted living community. Um, her daughter, who and we all live in the same town, her daughter spends a tremendous amount of time, even though her mother is in this community. She spends a tremendous amount of time visiting her, picking up prescriptions for her, buying her new clothing, um, buying her just some additional little food items to have in her unit, uh, taking her to doctor's appointments. Now, that's on top of the fact that uh, Fran, a cousin, uh, lives in an assisted living community. So... They, the dependence on adult children for emotional support um, is huge. And so leaving aside any financial, um, just looking at the social kind of socio-emotional support, there's still a tremendous amount of need there and a tremendous uh, gap when you don't have the adult children to do that. So... Yeah. Now, assisted living communities have have residents who don't have kids or don't have kids in the area that they can rely on, and they make up the deficit. But the the um, the planning that I think solo agers should do well ahead of that time is pretty robust. So let's talk about what some of those considerations would be. The one that seems to be the most obvious would be living situation. You mentioned retirement community, potentially assisted living communities, which is certainly one option. What about, let's say, for people that are really adamant <laughs> of, of not being in that type of a setting and want to have as much independence as possible? Is there a certain checklist or certain considerations that they should go through when considering just what type of surroundings they should be in, in for their home? Well, again, I just want to reinforce that I think what's now known as aging in place is not the best idea for solo agers, but there's aging in place. And then there's what I call aging in the right place. So that right place may be a retirement community, or it may be something like a mobile home community, um, a, an apartment building where there are a lot of people, where people are, are very, um, um, I, I don't know, there's a, not the coming up with the right word for it, but I would say pretty good, gregarious people get to know one another and they have activities. Uh, now I, you know, I've seen both ends of the spectrum. You can live in a, in a nice small senior apartment somewhere, um, totally on your own, totally independent, um, and have a lot of contact with your neighbors. And then there are some where you just don't have contact with your neighbors, but any sort of community that gets you, that puts you in a position to see your neighbors on a regular basis. Uh, familiarity breeds community. So let's take a mobile home uh, community, mobile home park, mobile home um, community. Most of those people 
park. People don't have garages, so they park outside somewhere, sometimes in a, in a large lot, sometimes next to their unit. Um, but they all typically go to a central area to get their mail, to do their laundry, unless you have a very fancy mobile home park with mobile homes that are big enough to have a washer and dryer. Most of them don't. So people have ample opportunity to see one another and to talk about things and to get together. A lot of mobile home communities have potlucks and other kinds of social activities that bring people together. Um, People go to movies together and, and there's just a lot of what I call community. Now, that can happen in a condominium complex, an apartment building. It can happen almost anywhere, but it rarely happens in suburban cul-de-sacs or suburban streets because people just don't see one another. Uh, A kind of community that I'm a big fan of is something called co-housing. Now, there's 200 and something co-housing communities around the country. They are grassroots efforts. People get together and pool their money and decide to actually build what generally looks like a cluster of small homes or it looks like a condominium building uh, where people have their own separate units fully self-contained. They have kitchens and dining rooms and bedrooms and bathrooms, just like a, a condominium. But their commitment is to live as community and to run their community um, through consensus or by committee where people are making decisions together. They usually um, have communal meals two or three times a week. They really watch out for one another. They care about one another. And community is not something that's just um, <laughs> planted and immediately exists. Community has to grow. So, um, there, anytime you put yourself in a position to be in community with others, meaning you see those others frequently, either several times a day or at least several times a week, breeds that kind of familiarity, which ultimately leads to people caring and watching out for one another. So again, that can happen in a number of ways in a number of places, but the where it's least likely to happen is in the suburbs where people just barely ever see one another. They go in and out of their garages and um, hardly ever hang out on their front porch. So uh, community is not what it used to be um, 100 years ago. Definitely true, I think, (laughs) as far as in the suburbs, which of course is the group that we try to focus on on our show in bringing people together, hopefully, with topics that are universal so that people can basically relate to the things that we're talking about. But I can definitely vouch for the fact that come out on your front porch and you don't really see your neighbors and at best maybe there's a wave or two when you're driving by them and so on. Do you think that... Or have you experienced people that have gotten so used to that that they aren't sure or maybe even don't believe in the benefits of the community like you're describing? And how do you go about reintroducing them to that concept? Um, By podcasts like this. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And by reading reading books about it. 
My book mentions many different um, ideas of ways people can build community. Um, there are many books out there today on, on how important community is to um, a successful and happy and safe retirement. So I'd encourage people to start really thinking about whether that suburban home that they're living in is going to support them in all the ways they need to be supported when they don't go to work anymore. Think about what happens when you can't drive anymore. Now, that's one of the scariest things for most um, suburban dwellers uh, because we rely on our cars. And once you can't drive, if there isn't public transit nearby, that's a problem. Now, fortunately, we have Lyft and Uber and and, um, uh, uh, other kinds of ride services, even taxi cabs. Uh, but that's not that doesn't completely solve the problem because once you can't drive anymore, you can't just spontaneously run out to lunch with a friend or get together for coffee um, at your favorite coffee house or just go hang out somewhere where you typically meet people and have a chance to chat with others. It it puts a real damper on your life, and a lot of people don't think about that when they're in their 50s or 60s and still happily living in their suburban homes. Um, the, the other big factor, of course, in with suburban homes is that many of them are not very well equipped for aging. Now, AARP um, and other organizations have created whole websites full of ideas and ways that you can make your home more age-friendly. That's important. Um, if you're going to age in your home, um, again, for solo agers, I'm not a big fan of aging in a, in a single family suburban home. Um, but for those out there who know that they're going to, um, then at least do take a look at some of those, the wonderful suggestions out there for how to make your home more age friendly. Do you run into people not accepting the inevitable? I hate to say it that way, but somebody that is probably closer to those considerations age-wise than they think they are and are dragging their feet for um, realizing where they're living and that, hey, it's not going to be that far down the road when, like you said, you might need help driving or... I don't know if you can have a, a first floor master bedroom, maybe, for example, or things like that. Absolutely. <laughs> far more than I would like. Far, far more. People are very much in denial, especially baby boomers. And, you know, baby boomers have the um, distinction of being the first, really one of the first generations ever to be able to expect to live into well into our 80s and 90s. And some uh, some of the people listening today right now will, um, will live into their hundreds. Um, it's not a big deal anymore for somebody to turn 100 in a retirement community. It just happens all the time. We have better health care, um, which is in some ways a two-edged sword because people are now living with the diseases and the crises that once meant the end of life. People are living with heart disease. They're living with diabetes. They're living with, with as cancer survivors. A lot of these things in years past would have meant end of life. Now they don't. 
So living with them sometimes means living a full, robust life, sometimes not. Sometimes that means living uh, with um, a lot of um, supports of some sort, whether they're mechanical supports or human support. Uh, but that's that's the reality of our generation and those that will follow us. I have to share one quick baby boomer story. I work in healthcare and I'm not in marketing, but there was a short period of time where I had to help with a campaign. And one of the primary notes for baby boomers as they were getting to Medicare age was when you're selecting the photos for the marketing pieces, they need to look like 40 and 50 year olds at most because (laughs) baby boomers do not see themselves as the prototypical face, we'll just say, um, of somebody that is eligible for Medicare and hitting some of those milestones. So it's funny to me that you (laughs) mentioned baby boomers specifically and the way that most in that generation view themselves. And so it doesn't come as a surprise to me that those are some conversations that you maybe have to persuade (laughs) the current generation of aging folks to be practical about some of the accommodations. And I think as well, if people are being honest with themselves about the suburban homes, and I don't know if it's still a term, but McMansions, right? (laughs) With these Mm -hmm. big houses, (laughs) decent amount of yards, it just takes those issues that you were talking about and exacerbates them because there's just even bigger plots of land. Yes, absolutely. What what other activities do you tend to suggest people do? Is it just find the things you're interested in, like we were saying at the beginning, and look for meetup groups or other community groups that share in the same kind of activities? Or is there specific things, I don't know, let's say like travel that you specifically recommend people take a look at as a way to be part of a community, not only amongst the people that you live with, but also you share a certain interest? I recommend that people do a self-assessment that is similar to what they may have done when they were looking for their first career. And that's to look at your values, uh, look at the things that you love, look at the skills that you have built over a lifetime, and think about which of those skills would transfer to um, a volunteer situation, to a nonprofit, uh, to some way in which you can give back to, uh, to your community in meaningful ways. Uh, many people in retirement take up very robust volunteer lives and are busier than they ever were when they were working. Um, I know our local paper every Sunday publishes a list of volunteer needs and um, everything from, gosh, the um, soup kitchens that are available to our homeless population, child care, um, there's just of such a wide variety of need in the community for volunteers. So I encourage people to take a look at how they can give back and, and what they have to offer. Um, so that's one thing. And then again, everyone is different. I know I have clients that, um, 
really just want to travel most of the time. And so they're away on some expedition or cruise or exploring some other country most of the year. And other clients who really have no interest in that and just want to volunteer for their, um, uh, their hometown, um, uh, civic parade or whatever it might be. Some people run for office at their civic and their city town council and get involved in those kinds of things. Really, really different strokes for different folks. We're all made up differently and we all have different interests and aspirations. Um, a lot of people end up having a much more satisfying life after they retire than when they were working. So there's all sorts of possibilities. It's important to remember that if you decide to retire at that classic age of 65, you may well have 30 more years to live. And most people want to, don't want to spend those entirely on the golf course. So that makes us a bit different than our parents' generation, though, of course, a lot of people who are in their 80s and 90s now um, the parents of baby boomers are still living. Um, so that's a kind of a harbinger of what that's going to look like for those listeners that do still have living parents uh, that are in their 90s. Can we spend some time on that particular situation? Because that is certainly the case. And like you said, more and more a common case for people that are hitting retirement, they still have uh, their aging parents. Is it just one extra consideration as you're preparing for your own retirement and what that's going to mean? Or are there any other special considerations that you should have balancing taking care of your par- of your parents if that's what you're having to do or j- just having them around while also preparing yourself? We all have heard the term sandwich generation. Um, sometimes that sandwich can be an extra long hoagie, meaning <laughs> those parents that um, were, were uh, aging, well, we thought of that they were aging in their 60s when we were in their 40s. Um, now we're in our 60s or 70s and those parents are in their 90s and they're still going. Um, if you do have parents that are well up in years, it's a great opportunity to take a look at their life and see now what can they do? What can't they do? How satisfied are they with their lives? Um, what can you do to um, make your life a little different than theirs is at this point? Uh, what can you do to make your life very much like? theirs if you look at them with admiration of how they've dealt with those later years. So again, that's all over the map. Um, I have uh, clients and friends who have parents who are very healthy in their 90s and others whose parents are not very healthy, but they're still living. Um, And it's still important that their life be meaningful in some way. You know, I have to say, I'm putting another plug for retirement communities Um, If you're listening out there and you can afford to move into a retirement community of some sort, even if it doesn't involve any kind of care, even if it's just a 55 plus community of homes or apartments or mobile homes or whatever it might be, I strongly encourage you to consider that the happiest people, and there've been many studies of this. The happiest people out there are people who live in community, not people who have isolated themselves 
in their single family suburban or even country homes. Well, one other question and thought about people that have their parents still living while they're approaching this 50s and 60s age relative to the community piece, there could be, I imagine, a pitfall of the person not developing their community because so much of their time is being taken up by taking care of their elderly aging parent. So one, is that the case? And two, if so, do you recommend that people be aware of that and make sure that you're not isolating yourself because you're taking on the burden of your parents' care? I don't see a lot of that. Um, I'm sure that there are cases like that, people who have been so subsumed by the care of an of an aging parent that they cannot or have not been able to live their own lives. Um, there's That's challenging and there's ways um, it's caregiving is not my area of expertise, but I encourage people to find ways to get respite from that. Um, but I'm more, I hear much more that people are kind of subsumed by helping to care for their grandkids. And a lot of older adults are making grandparenting a kind of second career, uh, and they want to spend a tremendous amount of time with those grandkids. They want to move somewhere where they will, um, where they will be near those grandkids. So um, that I hear that a lot more than than taking care of aging parents. Are there any even pitfalls into doing that? Sort of following the kids uh, to whatever town they maybe have gone to, and and if it's a new place for. Uh, the person that's hitting retirement age and getting ready to enjoy grandparent life? Well, there are a lot of questions in that. And um, I mean, there's a lot of topics that come out of, of your question. And one is, of course, uh, remember that my expertise is really with regard to solo aging. So these are people that don't have grandkids. One of the hazards for solo agers is that many of their friends who do have kids um, move away. Someone that you expected to grow old with because you've been friends for 30 years suddenly uproots and moves to Iowa where their kids are. Um, that's a problem for solo agers. But community is community. And that might mean family and it might not. So if you have grandkids and you want to be with those grandkids and kids, then absolutely. Um on the, you consider a move. The trap that I see a number of people falling into is remember that people are not so stable today as they once were. And your son or daughter who is in their 30s, who gets a wonderful job opportunity a thousand miles away and decides to take it and move the family there, might not be there 10 years later. So think hard about whether how stable that situation is going to be because it's all well and good to move to follow your kids and grandparents when you're in your 60s or early 70s. It's a lot harder to do again 10 years later. 
So if you have a, it's a, it's a tough decision because if you have a community of friends and maybe you have a church or synagogue that you're active in and um, you're well in, uh, immersed in your community and yet you want to be with your grandkids, uh, that's a very, very big, big decision. And a lot should go into that, not the least of which is how convinced are you that those kids are going to stay at that place in Colorado or Texas or wherever it is they're moving for the rest of their lives. So again, that, that's a tough one and there's no easy answers. You just have to make the best decision you can. Yeah. Yeah. Then weigh the pros and cons, <laughs> which as you mentioned, uh, can be pretty significant. So if I am a listener right now and you just described me of been 50s, 60s, and I haven't thought of any of these things at this point, and I'm a little bit panicked. What should be my next step, either right now or in the near term, to get my ducks in a row and figure out what I really want as I'm trying to shape what my retirement looks like? Well, I think two things. Uh, start thinking about it. Start talking about it with the people you care about and that care about you. Um, and that might be your spouse, your kids, your friends, um, the people at your church or synagogue. Um, start getting active around it. There are many wonderful books out there that if you're a reader, uh, they may give you a lot of good ideas. They may give you ways to think about things. If you're a solo ager, certainly take a look at my book, um, Essential Retirement Planning for Solo Agers. I also participated in a book that I'm very proud of. There were about 20 of us that wrote this book from an organization called the Life Planning Network, and it's called Live Smart After 50. And you can find uh, any of the books I mentioned, you can find them on Amazon. But it's a great guide to life planning, um, sometimes in fairly uncertain times. So those are two good ones. If um, if you're married and you're, you think it might be a, a struggle to figure out retirement with a spouse that has some other ideas about his or her life. You might want to take a look at a book called The Couple's Retirement Puzzle um, by Dorian Mincer and Roberta Taylor. Um, and those are just three of the many fine, fine books out there. And it's nice that on Amazon, we can kind of take a look inside as they let you do to see, you can look at the table of contents and see whether it looks like something that might help you. Uh, but that's how I would start. And I totally agree with you. Amazon is certainly the easiest place to get a lot of things, and certainly books. If for some reason there's people out there that uh, don't use Amazon, for your book in particular, is there anywhere else that they can pick it up? You know, <laughs> um, some bookstores carry it. You can certainly ask your local bookstore to order it because it is um, my publisher participates in all of the um, the organizations and the companies that do the distributing to bookstores. So you can absolutely do that with any of the three books I mentioned. And, and most books out there um, can be ordered by the bookstore in your hometown. If people are interested in learning more about you or even trying to get in contact with you, what is the best way for them to do that? I have a website and the best, easiest way to reach my website is lifeencore, 
dot com. That's life L I F E Encore E N C O R E dot com. And that'll give you more information about me and um and the book and some of the things that um that that I do and some of the things that I talk about. Most of my life these days is spent talking to groups about solo aging. Uh, so you'll find out information about that and um, some of the, the uh, talks that I've done. And there are some recordings on there as well. And any social media that you tend to use that people should look, look you up on? Yeah, Life Encore has its own Facebook page. Um, and I'm also on LinkedIn. Again, my name is Sarah Zeff, Z is in zebra, E double F is in Frank, Geber, G-E-B-E-R. And Sarah does not have an H. Yeah, LinkedIn. You can search me out on LinkedIn. I'm active on LinkedIn. That sounds great. Well, before I let you go, Sarah, again, I do really appreciate you taking some time to talk to me today. Is there anything that we didn't hit? We didn't talk about what happens if you don't have enough money. And these days, I'm really encouraging people to, uh, if you're scared because you don't have enough money to retire on and you know it, start looking at outside of the U.S. You know, there's no other company, company, no other country that that supports its people um so poorly with healthcare as the U.S. Almost anywhere else you could move, um, you would have better healthcare um, as a resident of that country. And it's sad to say, but we're in um, a bit of a mess here with regard to healthcare. So um, start looking outside the borders. There's a lot of very attractive places that are much warmer to live south of the border. Um, if you don't like Mexico, there's many countries in, in uh, Central America and South America that are very welcoming. There's a, um, a publication, also a website that I like a lot called International Living. So if you want to learn about other places that you can live with a lot less money um, and get health care that's as good or better than the U.S., take a look at internationalliving.com. Yeah, very cool. And I imagine we could spend a whole lot more time talking about that kind of a consideration, where to go and so on. So that sounds like a pretty cool resource for folks to uh, look into. And that is, I think, what people would think is outside the box, but it shouldn't necessarily be. <laughs> I don't think it should be anymore. You know, there are over 100,000 people living. Oh, I'm sure it's well over. There's 50,000 in, in one place in Mexico alone. Um that are kind of safe harbors for U.S. expatriates. Yeah, that sounds right. And actually, one of my favorite parts for my show is our travel episodes where we get people living in different parts of the world and just getting to experience other cultures is a benefit in and of itself. And I think probably even goes into some of the community aspects that we're talking about. Well, again, sir, I appreciate you coming on the show. I definitely learned a lot. I think folks that are listening did as well. We'll be sure, like I said, to post all of the links to your information, to the books that you mentioned. Uh, if, if folks need to have that for reference to know what you have going on. Great, Greg. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. 
If you'd like to help us even further, visit suburbanfolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to suburbanfolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to ringmedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G media.com.